I've seen girls dropping the dolly. I've seen all sorts. And I've seen, I've seen a good few uh, slightly embarrassed-looking Josephs having to go around knocking on doors. I do remember one particular nativity play where a little boy who, had, uh, who was given the role of an innkeeper, not the innkeeper, just an innkeeper. He was, put, he was obviously put out. He wanted to be Joseph. And I think he'd gone home and moaned about it. And an older brother, or brothers, had put him up to uh, changing the script a little bit. So uh, when Joseph knocked on the door of, of his establishment and asked if uh, they could have a room for the night, this innkeeper said, yeah, yeah, I've got double room. Ensuite bathroom. <laughs> so, you know, these are really... Everybody wants to be Mary and Joseph. But, of course, we need to go back a bit before they got the starring role in the Christmas story and think about who they actually were. Of course, they were just ordinary people. Uh, they were ordinary peasant people in Palestine. We... Uh, the story that, we're, that we tell each other of uh, the Christmas story, perhaps it's a little bit, sometimes a bit romanticised. Uh, but, yeah, Mary and Joseph, they were, they were poor people. And Mary's unexpected pregnancy would have caused a load of hassle. Um, and, you know, I, we could talk today about what it really would have meant uh, for Joseph. And he, he was very brave. He was very caring, um, but they, they had to go off to, to Bethlehem. They had to go and uh, register for the census. We have, our, we have our way of understanding the story and uh, that, that they, they had to go knocking on doors. They knocked on pub doors, I think. We understand the word in to mean something perhaps like a, what's it was called, the Herod Arms. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe it's a travel lodge. And they, they, they knock on doors, there's no room in any of these hotels. And then finally, some kindly pub landlord says, well, I haven't got any room, but, you know, you seem to be in a bit of a tight spot there, so you can go to a stable around the back. Actually, the story's probably not quite as romantic as that, um, even though we, we sing from the squalor of a borrowed stable. I don't, it's unlikely that they actually couldn't find anywhere to stay. Joseph would have had lots of relatives in Bethlehem. And uh, it would have been very shameful in, in, that, in that, those times for Jewish people to turn away a young couple. The, the, the truth probably is that uh, some of his relatives, they went to stay with them. They already had guests staying in their guest quarters, which is what is meant when we read there was no room at the inn. And so Mary and Joseph had to go and stay in the family quarters. And the family quarters were just one room. And um, it wasn't just the family that spent the night there. In a lower part of the room, uh, the family's animals would have spent the night. They would have been brought in at night to keep them safe so nobody could steal them. Um, just the same room, but a lowered part of the room. And uh, there would have been a manger there fixed into the floor so that during the night the animals could um, eat if they needed to. So I imagine that this family that took Mary and Joseph in shooed the animals out, but maybe they didn't. Maybe the animals were still there. So actually, although maybe we don't like to feel it wasn't quite the stable scene that we've always imagined, that it was just a very ordinary, it was very mundane. They went to stay with relatives. And they were peasants, the relatives. Mary and Joseph were peasants, the relatives were peasants. Uh, 
the relatives already had guests in the best room, so Mary and Joseph were in, the fam- in with a family. They were just ordinary, ordinary people. And that's what we're talking about today, the fact that this is an unexpected invitation, God's invitation to Mary and Joseph to be such a significant part of his big plan. It's unexpected because Mary and Joseph were so insignificant. And of course, when Mary is told by the angel what God plans for her, that she will have a baby and the baby will be the son of God, of course she's terrified and quite confused. (coughs) Understandably, she says, who me? How's that going to work? But when the angel reassures her that this is going to be a work of God's spirit in her, she says, yes. What she actually says is, let what you've said happen. Let it be as you've said. And that's a very radical yes, isn't it? Mary shows an extraordinary willingness to play her part in God's plan. It's a willingness to trust God, even though she doesn't know quite how it's going to work out. It's going to be more than inconvenient. It's going to put her life at risk, possibly, because the shame of being an unmarried mother in those times. But she lets go of her own plans, her own dreams, and she allows something completely new and beyond her wildest imagination, to happen in her. And off she goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. And when she arrives there, and Elizabeth greets her, Mary suddenly bursts into song. She probably dances as well. And this is what she sings. My heart declares that the Lord is great. My spirit exults in my saviour, my God. He saw his servant girl in her humility. From now, I'll be blessed by all peoples to come. The powerful one, whose name is Holy, has done great things for me, for me. His mercy extends from father to son, from mother to daughter, for those who fear him. Powerful things he has done with his arm. He routed the arrogant through their own cunning. Down from their thrones he hurled the rulers. Up from the earth he raised the humble. The hungry he filled with the fat of the land. But the rich he sent off with nothing. He has rescued his servant, Israel, his child, because he remembered his mercy of old. Just as he said to our long-ago ancestors, Abraham and his descendants, forever. Well, this is a remarkable song for a young peasant woman. It's about how the mighty God overthrows the power structures of the world, bringing down tyrants and lifting up the humble. Most of this song is made up from quotes of prophecies and psalms of the Old Testament. And so we can see that Mary knew the prophecies really well. She knew the scriptures. She knew the promises. She knew the promise to her ancient ancestor, Abraham, that that, that God had plans to bless the whole world through his family. Because what, what we need to remember is that Mary and Joseph, they lived under the despotic rule of Herod the Great. He was a ruthless king, and his brutal authority was backed up by the might of the Roman Empire. So this subversive song of Mary's 
It was a direct challenge to the rule of, and the might and power of Caesar himself. She's singing that the Messiah is going to triumph over all earthly powers and his kingdom will go on forever. So Mary understands that God's kingdom is a different kingdom. It's been described as an upside-down kingdom. In fact, for Mary, it's her awareness of her own low status that helps her to see what's going on here. Let's think who Mary represents. She represents the powerless and the insignificant in society. She's female, she's young, she's poor, she's unmarried. And she's from Nazareth in Palestine, which is, it was a backwater of the Roman Empire. Does anybody here think of the place they come from as a backwater? Anyone? Hillary's pointing at Jeff. Don't know whether he would agree. <laughs> when Jesus was calling his disciples, uh, do you remember, uh, I think Philip told Nathaniel, uh, come and see um, this man from Nazareth. And uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I should <coughs> just say that's what I thought when I heard Craig was from Woking. <laughs> But then there was Paul Weller from the jam. He was from Woking as well, wasn't he? I've learned to see it differently. So, despite the, the, her humble origins and where she came from, God has chosen Mary, of all people, to have such an unimaginably important role in God's plan. Her lowly status, she knew her place, as Pete did earlier, it doesn't disqualify her from the role, quite the opposite, actually. It's what makes her so exactly perfect for it. When we look at Luke's gospel, his telling of the gospel, we notice something. that He, he particularly points out the fact that this gospel is an upside-down one. It's the telling of a, this new kingdom that's being inaugurated with Jesus. It's an upside-down kingdom. We sometimes call it God's great reversal. And uh, this theme uh, is something that Luke notices threaded through Jesus' life and teachings. Remember when Jesus announces that he's come to proclaim good news. Who has he come to proclaim the good news to? It's the poor, the captives, the oppressed, the blind. In his initial Sermon on the Mount, his manifesto, the sayings that we call the Beatitudes, the, the, the blessed people. He elevates particularly, again, the poor, the meek, the weeping, the unpopular. He declares also later, those who are first now will become last, and vice versa. So Mary particularly praises God for choosing her in her lowly position in society. She celebrates the God who lifts up the humble and brings down the proud. She sings, God has great, done great things for me. She doesn't just mean her pregnancy, uh, which is going to uh, lead to all sorts of difficulty, liable to public stoning as an apparently adulterous woman. Um, she has to flee to Egypt as we've, uh, with uh, her little family to escape 
the massacre of the children when the wise men inadvertently let Herod know that a new king was born. They weren't quite wise enough, were they? Perhaps wise women would have been better. (laughs) So when she announces, God has done great things for me, she doesn't just mean the fact that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. She's celebrating the fact that God has highly esteemed someone who is so powerful, so powerless and insignificant. And she says, forthcoming generations will call her blessed. She sings, she sings that, that, she, that down the generations, people will refer to her as blessed. And we do, don't we? And as the American writer Catherine Marshall puts it, because she has given the first glimpse of this ultimate proof that the power of the Almighty God is the power of love. The fact that God has chosen an unmarried young woman from an occupied Palestinian backwater is deeply threatening to those who have a vested interest in the status quo. This is why Mary sings about God's mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation. Take this blessing seriously, she says. Pass it on to your children, if you dare. So what does all this mean for us? How do we respond to this vision, to God's upside-down kingdom, which is about to be inaugurated? Remember, Jesus, he didn't come to start a new religion. He wasn't asking people to change religion. He was saying, wake up, open your eyes. There's a new way of seeing things. I guess most of us, if we're honest, can identify at different times to each of those different characters in the I Know My Place sketch. Obviously, we're going to take the sketch literally, and I'm always going to be the peak character on the end due to having uh, struggles with IT and Mac and all of that. But that wasn't really quite what it was about. Um, we all have times where we feel, yeah, I know my place, I'm inferior. But other times where we find, yeah, we, we do look down on other people, if we're honest, even if just fleetingly. And Luke himself, who points out this reversal, he was likely an educated man and and not the poorest in society. And and, and yet he offers a warning, really, doesn't he? A warning uh, in his telling of the Gospel about superiority. Jesus had a lot to say to those who felt they were superior. The religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, they really felt of themselves. They, they, they were the experts. They were the insiders. They were in charge of who was inside and who was outside. Jesus had a lot of harsh words for them, a lot of challenges. Mary sings about the proud being sent away with nothing. And we must take this as a warning. Because when we get full of ourselves we're not able to receive the good things that God wants to give us. We need to have a sense of our own powerlessness and insignificance sometimes so we can be open to God and open to the new work he wants to do in us and the new life he wants to breathe into us. I think most of us struggle at times with our sense of our own insignificance. When God calls us, When God asks us to be part of his plan, 
Many of us say, who, me? How's that going to work? Maybe we say, me? How's that going to work? Which must have been the way Mary said it. And then we need to let go of the barriers that perhaps we've put up to protect our vulnerability. And we need to listen to the answer that comes. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be given the power of Almighty God. In one of our favourite Christmas carols, O Little Town of Bethlehem, there's a verse in which we sing to Jesus. We sing the words, Be born in us today. And yeah, we are called, like Mary, to say yes to the creative work of God's Spirit in us. To say yes, even though we feel that we're too insignificant, too unlikely, too much of an outsider. We need to say yes, so that we too can be blessed. Even though we don't know exactly how it's going to work out, we don't know what it'll entail, we don't know what it'll cost. But we need to say yes, so that we'll be blessed by being like Mary, bearers of Jesus. We bear Jesus into the world. We kindle his life within us so that we can share his radical, world-changing love and all that it means with people around us. And so we come now to the table So this table here, where we have the bread and the wine, this is the welcome table. And we were singing right at the beginning, come to the feast, where everyone is welcome. All of us are guests here. We're all honoured guests. Even though we might feel insignificant, Jesus welcomes us to his table. We may feel that we struggle to know Jesus. We wrestle with questions and doubts. We're not always faithful in the way that Jesus has called us to. Maybe this week sometimes we feel we've really messed up, we've caused hurt, maybe to others, to ourselves, to God's creation. And we long to know Jesus' saving presence in our lives. And so we remember at this table how Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Take it and eat. And remember me. And after supper, he took the cup, a cup of wine, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to his friends. And he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood. It's poured out for you, for everyone. Whenever you drink this, do it to remember me.
And so we thank you, Father God, that you sent Jesus. You sent him as a tiny, vulnerable child to an insignificant couple in an insignificant place. And through his life and death and resurrection, you welcome us to your table. And we can receive his life into our life so that we can be a blessing to the whole world. And so, everyone, come to the table. Come to the feast. And meet the king of all kindness who pours out his love and grace.